All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 today. Uh, Dan mentioned the, um, uh, the carnival last night, which um, occurred on October 31st, which we call Halloween. Halloween, which is a contraction for... Some, some people said it. What it? All Hallows' Eve is the correct answer, um, which makes today All Saints' Day. How many of you grew up in a tradition where All Saints' Day was noted and, and uh, honored and celebrated and so forth? Yep. What? Um, as far as um, Protestants faith, Protestant faiths, um, I think our Methodists are most likely to celebrate All Saints' Day. Uh, a number of other uh, Protestant um, uh, faiths uh, do, uh, notably the Lutherans. Um, but uh, All Saints Day has an interesting history. You can look it up online. But um, uh, there was a day uh, when, in, as the, the Roman Catholic Church um, said, you know, we're going to honor, um, well, <laughs> of course, nothing's without man's corruption, right? So I guess the Pope wanted to honor his wife who had died, and somebody pointed out to him, well, she wasn't a saint, so you can't name a church after someone who's not a saint. So he said, well, okay, well, this will this church will be in honor of all the saints. And so they said, it was All Saints Day, and it turned up coinciding with a, this pagan festival, and they didn't want to do that. He said, okay, fine, I'll move it to the fall, and uh, turned up November 1st, and people said, well, you know, that happens to be next to another pagan Celtic day, and anyway, so um, nothing's quite pure, right? And we, we deal with this when we come around Christmas, and, you know, we've uh, tried to sanctify some things that have uh, come through us through um, uh, uh, extra-biblical traditions. Um, but anyway, All Saints Day is, is kind of interesting, and, and some Protestant churches have broadened it out to Truly be mindful of uh, those um, uh, brothers and sisters in the faith who have made, be made um, significant contributions to uh, the church or perhaps your own life, and that's certainly a, a reasonable way to do that. So uh, All Saints Day is, um, is our day today, and uh, it, thinking in terms of church calendars, um, we are in Holy Week, right, and many items in what we normally think of as a church calendar, do come straight from Scripture. We know about Good Friday. We know about Easter. I'm, I'm making some assumptions here. <laughs> we, um, uh, we do a Monday Thursday service um, uh, here. So the, uh, the, the Christian calendar is full of things, and, and we're right in the heart of that as Matthew has brought us up to this point. And early on in the book, Matthew told us who Jesus was and established his credentials. And this whole march has been establishing why he came, who he is, what he's about. And you're going to see what happens as people grapple with that uh, in, in our passage uh, today. So turn with me, uh, if you're not already there, to Matthew uh, 26. Verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, 
Let's stop there. So if there are several times in Matthew where he uses this phrasing after Jesus had finished these things. So, uh, for example, and you don't have to turn here, but in the latter part of chapter 7, in verse 28, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his, te- his teaching. And it's a transitional phrase that, that Matthew uses, and he goes on to his next story. Um, in chapter 11, it says, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. These kind of summary statements. If you go back to chapter 19, um, he says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and so forth. And now in verse 1 of chapter 26, we have a similar verse. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples. So what's different about the verse in chapter 26? They're getting ready to kill Jesus. Well, they are getting ready to kill Jesus. It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. I think Matthew has given us this little clue. Okay. He has wrapped it up. He's been more and more blatant to the disciples about what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. He's been very blunt with the religious leaders of the day. And he's wrapping up. He says, when Jesus had finished all these things. So pretty much everything that the disciples needed to be taught, at least up until the point of, of where they are now, the, the formal instruction, so to speak, was done. Now, there's some very big instruction that we're going to cover today, but all never means all, but I think it is a clue that, that there's going to be a change and um, wrapping things up. He says in verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover, Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So we've had hints of this off and on. Um, People questioning, you know, when's this going to happen? How's it going to happen? And this is pretty clear. Two days, Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's pretty much about as clear as you can get. Verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So because we've had the scene set for us so clearly, we, we understand all this now, right? The chief priests and the elders, we know that they were diametrically opposed to the message of Jesus because he was teaching that they weren't that important, that there was corruption, that... They were not mindful of the things of God that, like they claimed to be. It says they were gathered in the palace of the high priest, basically in his home. His name was Caiaphas, who was the son-in-law of the high priest Annas, who had preceded him, but apparently who still exerted some influence. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus. Now, one interesting thing about Caiaphas you think religious leaders, well, how do you get to be the chief priest? 
Is it like they all gather together and elect one, kind of like the cardinals do the pope from amongst themselves? No. Caiaphas was appointed by the Roman governor of the day. The, the, the person who immediately preceded Pontius Pilate appointed him. So this is a, definitely a political position that he has, even though it came with a religious title. So this is very blurry in terms of, um, well, it's more than blurry. Is, does this bear any resemblance to what we thought of as a high priest back when we were studying you know, Exodus and, you know, no, this is not, you know, maybe he was from the, the tribe of Levi, maybe, I, I don't know, but that may have been the only connection with that. We know that they were plotting, we know, not during the feast, because we know that he was very popular. Remember, it was just four or five days ago that the triumphal entry, you know, where people were just sing, literally singing his praises as he comes into town, laying down their cloaks and palm branches on the, on the ground, he was very, very popular. So they knew they couldn't just do it in broad daylight, so to speak. Verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of the Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Matthew's a, t a storyteller. He has a very important point to make, and he's wanting to unfold the narrative in a, in a way that makes some points very clear. I'm going to pause about this section of the story and go on to verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. The story about Jesus being anointed at Bethany, we know from John, and you can flip over to John chapter 12, verse 1. This story happens prior to Matthew 26, we'll say. John tells us, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. They gave him dinner there. And then we find out in verse 3, this lady's name was Mary. She took a pound of expensive ointment from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So we get many more details about what happened, including how expensive it was, what it was, how she did it, and when it was, six days before the Passover. So why does Matthew 
in a thematic way rather than a chronological way, why does Matthew put this story in where he puts it? Because we find out that one of the people who was so offended, so to speak, about what she had done was Judas. And that this was maybe one of the reasons why Judas had made that decision to betray him. Verse 4 of John 12, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this appointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge over the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So, Judas has been attached to the disciples, one of the twelve, and has witnessed this extravagance um, and perhaps had been thinking, okay, Jesus is getting to be prominent. People are going to start to make some donations. Um, I'm in charge of the money. I've been dipping in when I want to. And now, what's all this going to waste? And Jesus doesn't seem to care. Why isn't he accumulating money for uh, this rebellion that I've been under the assumption that is going to happen? There may be many other reasons why Judas betrayed Jesus, but I think Matthew puts that story where he puts it because in his mind, and he's had a decade or two or three to consider this, that there was at least some connection between what Judas observed with this woman anointing his feet and the reason why Judas wanted to portray Jesus. Now down to verse 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, uh, we know from some of the other Gospels that uh, they were like, well, how are we going to find this man? And they said, well, he's the one that's carrying water, which would have been an unusual thing to see because with the division of labor as it was back in the day, only the women would have been carrying water. And so to see a man carrying a big jar of water would have been very obvious who this person was. They said, find this man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did it as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. They are, I, I don't know that we know why, but they are preparing the Passover before it was time for the Passover. They're a couple days ahead of time, or at least maybe a day ahead of time. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. 
we have this great painting, right? The Last Supper, where you see Jesus in the middle and all of the disciples symmetrically arranged on either side of this table. I'm not sure what they're all looking at. Some big view out the window, apparently. Um, but that's not at all how this was, right? So this is basically um, like a big sofa sectional, or maybe even better, a bunch of, um, if you've ever been on a cruise, there are about a gazillion um, lounge chairs around the pools. Uh, unfortunately, there are two gazillion uh, passengers on the cruise, so it's hard to, it's hard to find one of these uh, loungers. But if you had a bunch of loungers and arranged them all around where the heads were all kind of in a circle or semicircle facing each other, and everybody was kind of leaning down on maybe one elbow and has another hand to, to eat with, that is more of a, a typical picture when it says he reclined at the table with the 12. And that little detail is omitted from the famous painting, but uh, that's the idea. And it says, verse 21, and, and as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? By this time, they know that Jesus is kind of good at like predicting things, and he's got this whole miracle thing that they've observed. So, you know, they, they're believing that he, that he is saying the truth there. 23, he says, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, did that narrow it down at all? No. <laughs> was everybody dipping from the same dish? Yes, everyone was dipping from the same dish. But he at least narrowed it down to the disciples, right? It wasn't going to be like the waiter. Verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. I must admit that phrase never hit me until this lesson. The Son of Man goes at it as it is written of him. What does that tell you? God has a sovereign will, and it applies to Jesus. I'm pretty sure it's going to apply to each of us as well. And how that all works in with the mystery of free will and choice and all that is in God's hands, but uh, I think it does mean we can trust that what happens at the end of the book is going to be pretty good. The Son of Man goes at, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. That kind of phrasing um, shows up in some of this other questioning. Um, and apparently that was a, it was not an uncommon way to, uh, like, well, you said it, not me. That's sort of a comment. Verse, 20, verse 26. My glasses broke. These are like five years old out of my <laughs> nightstand. Um, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. So this is a very well-known passage to us. Um, your Bible may be labeled as mine as the institution of the Lord's Supper. I was reading a sermon in preparation for this and the 
pastor said, you know, you can tell a pretty good story of Christianity by thinking about five meals. If you think about it, you could do this too. What would be the very first memorable meal of spiritual significance in Scripture? The tree in the garden. Things went bad after that. Meal number one. What would meal number two be? Before then. After that. The Passover. The Passover. Meal number two. Meal number three... I would, he says, would be this meal. This transition meal where, where Jesus is there to celebrate Passover. That's what he's told the disciples. But we just read it where he's given it a twist. He took the bread after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples. And now he says, take it, this is my body. He took a cup. This is my blood of the covenant. The Passover was always looking back at the meal prepped in haste, right? The, the, the lamb that was cooked, not like you normally cook lamb, but just cook it whole and cook it quick. I didn't make it up, Pat. That's <laughs> We studied Exodus, right? Um, <laughs> So here we have a transition meal, meal number three. What would be the fourth meal of significance? It's the one that we get to celebrate. It's the communion of believers looking back at this point. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right? For I received from the Lord that I, what I delivered to you, that the Lord on... Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We get to celebrate that fourth meal every time we take communion. And then the fifth meal. What's the fifth meal? Yes. Revelation 19. Verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us exalt and rejoice and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We hear all about the marriage supper. That's a pretty good memory device, I thought. If you, you know, Pastor alluded to this the other day, sometimes we, we wonder and get nervous about how we might talk about Jesus. This wouldn't be a bad way, right? Somebody says, well, hey, I, hear, I know you're a Christian. Give me the, what's the short version of that? And you're come back and say, 
You know, I can tell you everything about Christianity over five meals, right? And you talk it through. And what does that mean? That means God, I mean, God was there at the beginning. He laid out something perfect. Man screwed it up. God is always about redeeming his people. He pulled him out of Egypt. Jesus was there, made the connection between our past and our future, and we're going to have an opportunity while we're here on earth to remember that. And now we can look forward to this final meal. That's not a bad way. Another um, little kind of memory device or our way of being thoughtful about the Lord's Supper. Uh, one commentator said to think about the Lord's Supper directionally, that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're looking backwards at this event in history that we can say we know it really happened. There really was Jesus. There really was a disciple. We can look back on that and, and know that that work is finished. We can look forward because Jesus says, I tell you, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new with you. That's the marriage supper. We can look at it as looking around us. We know from John that it was at this same supper when Jesus became as a slave and washed the disciples' feet. So we can look at those around us. It says something about looking outward. That verse, I, uh, the passage rather I read in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, because when you do this, you proclaim the death of Jesus. So every time we take communion, we're, we're preaching the Lord's Supper and the significance of that. Um, inwardly, we're supposed to reflect. You get the idea. Another good way of thinking about the Lord's Supper. Were these crazy days back then? Absolutely. What was, well, let me say it this way. Judas had a picture of what Jesus' ministry and his kingdom was going to look like. And in his mind, he had put all his eggs in that basket. But it dawned on him, this is not what I signed up for. This was not what he was wanting. So he bailed on that. The disciples, the 11, had all their eggs in this basket too, so to speak. How do you think they felt just a few days later after he'd been on the cross having hung out with Jesus for three years the reality of that probably obscured 
at least in part, all of these clues and even the blatant statements that Jesus had been giving to them that, you know, this isn't the end. There's going to be another, there's, there's another chapter after this. But even still, it, they had never seen anything like that. Well, actually, I take it back. They had seen something like that, hadn't they? Because they were just at Lazarus' house. That It was Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house where the anointing happened. So they had seen resurrection. So I guess they could have been thinking about that. But still, it must have felt really, really weird until they saw Jesus again and they saw the power of the resurrection and then things are building up and then it's just a few weeks later and the Holy Spirit comes and then next thing you know, like we saw in Acts when Pastor Bob was preaching, that now it's all about going forward. It's all about, you know, and, and Peter's preaching. It's like, who is this guy? That was just denying, which we'll see next week. So a lot, a lot has changed. Um, I think it says something to us maybe because, you know, we're on the eaves of, a, of an election where many, if not most of you maybe, have already voted and a lot of people are curious about what's going to come out and a lot of people are worried and a lot of people are not sure how things are going to turn out and, oh my gosh, what's our future going to be? That's not really, no matter who wins or who loses, should that really make that much of a difference to us? I mean, we have a role to play, and you know, Chuck Colson wrote many years ago about the importance of civic responsibility and the, the common grace that God can bestow upon governments and stuff like that. But the day after the election, I'm going to get up, I'm going to go to work and there's going to be Lord willing people there to see me and I'll go on with the rest of my day and it probably won't be that much different. There's still going to be lost people. There's still going to be those of us that have a good message to, to tell and like I said, we we can have confidence that the story turns out the way it does. I started off the lesson alluding to some of our Catholic influences that have kind of come down. Um, you've heard of Dante, Italian poet, philosopher, and so forth. Um, things did not go well with him with the Catholic Church. Uh, he was... Um, uh, I guess exiled or whatever. What was he dealing with? He was dealing with corrupt religious folks. Kind of like Jesus was dealing with corrupt religious folks. And out of that he writes, of course, his master poem. And at the toward the end, he meets this gal who is just really doing amazing and is it just serene with her surroundings and he's puzzled by this and, and basically she says and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly but in him is our peace and so as Dante was kind of 
autobiographically writing all this about what all had happened to him and how corrupt things were and and he could say through this woman in him is our peace and so I think as we are maybe in various turmoil and there is no perfect politician um, we can say in him is our peace and we can do that by really looking back at the Lord's Supper and all that that means at all of those famous meals and the fact that we have a really good one to look forward to all right we'll stop there uh, comments questions and of course um, uh, I'll put in in some of the uh, podcast notes uh, some of the sources uh, a lot of the things of in fact very little of what I said today was original but we tried to pull it together in a way that, that seems fair. All right, I need to tell the class something. All right, you may do it before or after we pray. Um, before you pray. Okay. Linda Bowling, 